Well, welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. Uh, we are nearing the end of this study. I think we've got about three more weeks after tonight. Uh, but uh, we have been discussing this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And recently, in the last week or so, we've begun to discuss uh, how our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven uh, affects the way we interact with culture here on earth. And so uh, all through this study, we have uh, used this idea that there are two kingdoms and one king. Uh, two kingdoms governed by two covenants, uh, the common kingdom governed by the Noahic covenant, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of redemption governed by means of the new covenant. And so we find ourselves as citizens of both and living in the world alongside our neighbors who may or may not be Christians. And so last week we discussed the idea of culture and we looked at the, the culture of the kingdom itself. But this evening we're going to begin to discuss the intersection uh, of the kingdom of heaven and the, and the culture that comes with it that we take part in as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and the culture of the kingdoms of this world. And so I just want to briefly review a couple of definitions for us before we uh, get into this. So uh, what is a kingdom? Well, on the face of it, we've said that a kingdom is the territory and subjects over which a king rules. Right? So uh, a kingdom is comprised of the citizens of the kingdom and the territory in which they live. So as we consider the kingdom of God, then will we say, well, God rules over all of his creation. He rules over all men. So isn't the kingdom of God uh, cover all territory, all geography, and all men? Well, in a sense, it does. And so that's the reason that we have this uh, idea of the two kingdoms, both ruled by God. But we also know that Jesus, when he came, spoke about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God being near or being at hand or being not of this world. So there's some sense in which his kingdom is not uh, the same thing as the kingdom that governs all of humanity. And so in this particular way, we're talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the redeemed that is governed by God's Messiah as king. And of course, the Messiah, Christ, is both God and man. So he is the king of both of these kingdoms, a universal kingdom as God and the kingdom of the redeemed, both as God and man. Uh, and so uh, this kingdom of heaven has already begun in the hearts of those who believe and in the corporate life of the church as an institution of the kingdom of heaven, uh, but it is yet to be fully consummated. Uh, and so all Christians are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, under the authority of Christ, our King, but we live here on earth, and so we have to engage with the cultures of this world. So last week we looked at culture, and I'll summarize our definition of culture from last week. I quoted several different sources, but a summary of them would be to say that culture is all the ways of life, including knowledge, art, beliefs, customs, morals, laws, and institutions that form human society. So culture is all of those things in any one given human society. The culture of the kingdom of heaven, as we discussed last week, would differ from the cultures of the world because those basic beliefs of the culture of the kingdom of heaven are different than the beliefs held by those who are non-Christians, non-believers in Christ the Messiah. And those beliefs inform the rest of 
the culture, right? They inform our morals, our laws, our customs, our way of life. And so the culture of the kingdom of heaven is distinct from and different than the cultures that would be formed in this world uh, that include non-Christians. So the question then is how can and should Christians participate in cultural activities with the world? Uh, Particularly as we think about cultural activities, arts, uh, knowledge, institutions, laws, etc. How do we interact and engage with our non-Christian neighbors uh, in these cultural activities? And so tonight, I want to particularly address two, uh, the arts and the sciences. How do we engage uh, in the arts and the sciences uh, with our non-Christian neighbors? So let's define, what do I mean by the arts? Well, the arts are human practices involving creative expression. That's what the arts are, human practices involving creative expression. So then we have to ask the question, well, what do they express? What do the arts uh, express? Well, they express identity, uh, ideas, values, uh, emotions, spiritual meaning, uh, experiences that the artist has had. Uh, And so how are they expressed? Well, there are different kinds of arts. There's the literary arts, which includes uh, writing, poetry, fiction and nonfiction works, drama, etc. There are the visual arts, drawing, painting, sculpting, film, TV, that sort of thing. And there are performance arts, music, dance, theater, uh, acting, and I would even lump sports into that category, seeing as that most of this art uh, is a form of entertainment, so to speak, and the sports really are a performance art, entertaining people. Uh, And you'll notice there's a lot of overlap between these different types of art, right? The literary arts overlap with, uh, say, the visual arts and performance art when it comes to the subject of TV or film, right? Somebody has to write a script, others perform it, and then it's captured visually for others to watch it. So there's a lot of overlap between all of these things. But remember that that art is expressing ideas and values and meaning uh, that's put into it by the people that wrote it, by the people who performed it, directed it, that sort of thing. The sciences, what I mean by the sciences, are human endeavors uh, that are discovering and attempting to organize knowledge. So as we attempt to discover information, knowledge about God's creation and organize that knowledge, those are the sciences. So we can think of chemistry, uh, geology, astronomy, physics, medicine and biology, even history and anthropology. We're discovering knowledge and organizing it in certain ways that it can be put to work for us uh, in different aspects of our lives. So the question that I want to try and answer tonight is, are there any biblical principles, and if there are, what are they, that should guide Christians uh, in our participation in the arts and the sciences uh, as we engage in and participate in the arts and sciences in the world, which means engaging in those things with our non-Christian neighbors. So the first thing we need to discuss is that there are two ways to participate in culture, and particularly in the arts and the sciences. We can participate by creating these things. We can be artists who create things, uh, or we can consume it by viewing it, watching it, listening to it, whatever the, the medium may be, right? So we can participate by actually being involved in the creation of an art or science, 
we can be involved as a consumer of it. And so we have to think through both aspects of that and how are we to be involved. So what biblical principles are there? Well, let's start right at the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so right at the very beginning of the testimony of Scripture, we see that God is creative. He created all things that exist. And we can look around us at the creation that we can behold with our eyes and we can witness uh, the beauty and the creativity of God in what he has made. Psalm chapter 19, uh, again, a passage that you're familiar with, I'm sure. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Right? So, Everything that he has made is declaring his glory. We can see the blue sky, the red sunset. Paul sent me some pictures the other night of the sunset standing at his house with fantastically amazing colors in the clouds in all four directions. And they were different colors, reds and oranges and purples and just amazing creativity on the part of God, right? So God is a creative God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, Well, should we uh, attempt creative endeavors? God has created, and he has created things that are beautiful and lovely. Should we attempt to follow in his footsteps uh, in the creative arts? Well, if we turn the page in Genesis 1, look down at verse 26. At least I had to turn the page in my Bible. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in his act of creation and creativity, God made humankind in his image. So if God is creative... Does that mean, since we are made in the image of God, that we should be creative as well? Well, I think it does. And I will quote to you from one of my favorite authors, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who wrote an essay on uh, creativity, on uh, fairy tales and fantasy literature, of course, which he was a part of in writing The Lord of the Rings. And in this essay, he talks about what he calls sub-creation. And this is the idea that as humans, the things that we create, we're not creating ex nihilo. We're not creating out of nothing the way God did. We're sub-creators, right? We're working with things that God has already created. As the artist sculpts an image, he's working with clay or stone or whatever, and he's creating an image based on the things that he's seen that God already made, right? So we're sub-creators. And so he says this. He says, we make in our measure and in our derivative mode. Because we are made, and not only made, but made in the image and likeness of a maker. So Tolkien's idea is that we create, we make things, but we do it in a derivative manner, God being the primary creator and us as sub-creators, and we do it because God is a creator and he made us in his image. And so Tolkien felt that there was a drive in humanity to create things. This is why we build roads and cities and buildings and civilizations and create works of art because it's part of our identity as being made in the image of God. But we need to recognize that whatever it is that we make, 
whether it's in the creative arts or in sciences, uh, is derivative of God's creation. Uh, we cannot create out of nothing the way God did. And so does this affect how Christians would approach the creative arts? Well, absolutely it does, because this means that Christians should approach the arts with a measure of humility, knowing that God is the ultimate creator and that anything that we're doing in the arts that turns out to be beautiful or enjoyable or in any way good is derivative of what God has already done in his creation. So there should be a principle of humility as we approach the creative arts. The second passage I would have us turn to is in Exodus chapter 35. Uh, And this is God has brought the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and he is taking them towards his promised land and he is establishing them as a nation and he is giving them uh, laws and instructions for how they are to conduct their society as a nation. And so they have a lot of things that they have to build under God's direction. They have a tabernacle to construct. They have priestly robes and, and different sorts of tapestries that they need to sew. They have an Ark of the Covenant they need to build. All of these things that they have to construct, that they have to make. And so uh, God, speaking through Moses, uh, is, is giving them instructions on how to do this. So in Exodus chapter 35, beginning in verse 30, we read this. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. So we have a specific Israelite from the tribe of Judah called by name. Uh, the Lord has called him by name. And in verse 31, he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. So God has called this particular man by name and gifted him with artistic ability and insight and creativity and skill. And then he goes on in verse 34, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker and blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and who, those who design artistic works. So God gifted these two men not only with the ability to do these things, but the ability to teach others how to do them. And so God obviously intends for them to do creative work, all manner of artistic work, and he has filled them with wisdom and understanding uh, and skill from God to do this. So this teaches us that artistic endeavors and the skill and the ability to create art is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And, And you'll notice that he's filled them with the Spirit, with wisdom, understanding, with knowledge, and with skill. And so art, when it's practiced by Christians, when Christians participate in the arts, we should practice art, first of all, in the fear of the Lord. He's filled them with wisdom, which we know is the fear of the Lord, and with knowledge, and with thought, and with skillfulness. So as Christians engage in the, the creative arts, they should do so seeking and pursuing excellence in their artistic undertakings. 
because God in his creation, his creative works was perfect. His work is excellent. He's gifted artists with the skill and with knowledge and with wisdom, so we should pursue creative endeavors with excellence. The third principle that I would point out, uh, we'll turn to the New Testament for. We'll go, to, first of all, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. Now, the discussion that Paul is having with the church in Corinth here is not particularly about the arts, but he says something that I think applies. Uh, he is dealing with uh, their practice uh, of, of how they are conducting themselves as a church and uh, some disputes they're having over uh, what food was lawful for them to eat, and this sort of thing. And so the apostle, in addressing this, he tells them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whether you eat it or not, whether you drink it or not, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So he's addressing a specific situation, but he makes this sweeping statement that everything Christians do should be done for the glory of God. So this would apply to artistic endeavors as well. If we are uh, creating art, writing songs, filming movies, writing a poem, whatever it is we're doing, we should do it for the glory of God, to the glory of God. He says very much the same thing in the book, to, in his letter to the Colossians, in chapter 3 uh, of Colossians, he says in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's very much the same idea. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're well, not going to do something uh, poorly in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you're doing it in, in Christ's name, you're doing it for his glory, you're going to pursue excellence in the doing of it. You're going to do it for his glory, not for your own. And then he continues here, and he says, not only are you to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, but he also says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever we do, we do it to Christ to please him for his glory and in thankfulness to the Father for allowing us to do something that glorifies Christ. So there's an aspect of thanksgiving that should be part of our creative endeavors, that we're working to please God, and that in doing so, we should be thankful uh, to him for allowing us to participate in this. He says in, in verse 23 of that same chapter, Colossians 3, he says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So this would, again, apply to every aspect of the Christian life. It would apply to our uh, engagement with the creative arts. We should do it uh, to the Lord and not to men, not to please men, but to please God. So as we think about this, we think about the Noahic covenant that we've talked a lot about in this study and we think about Paul's instructions to the church in Corinth about eating and drinking, his instructions to the church in Colossae, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it to please God and not to please men. We're talking about ordinary things, right? The Noahic covenant was about getting married and raising kids and participating in the common life of humanity eating and drinking. So everything that we do, even the ordinary common things, uh, and so if we think about art, as we pursue art, one of the questions that we might ask is, well, is it okay for a Christian artist 
to create art that is not explicitly Christian? Is it okay for a Christian to write a song that is not explicitly a gospel song? Well, I would think on the basis of these passages that it is. We do ordinary human things in concert with other humans. And so we are to do those things to the glory of God and to please him. So it should be permissible for us to portray those things in art as long as it's done with the same goals in mind, to glorify him and to please him. So a Christian artist could paint a picture of a landscape that doesn't explicitly have a cross in it or anything that would identify it or set it apart as Christian art if it was in a museum next to a non-Christian piece of artwork. But when the artist created it, he was doing it to please God and he was doing it for the glory of God. And so I don't think that, that he shouldn't be engaging in that sort of creative artwork because he didn't put a cross in it, right? We can do ordinary things, but we do them for the glory of God and to please him. Another passage that we might look at in this same uh, context is in Mark chapter 12. And this is a passage that you would be uh, familiar with. Mark chapter 12, uh, around verse 29, uh, someone has come to Christ and has asked him uh, about the law, the law of Moses. And they've asked him, what is the first commandment or the greatest commandment? And in Mark 12, 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So as Christians engage in our creative endeavors and in the arts, they should do so in a manner that loves God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. They should do it heartily as to the Lord, is what Paul said in Colossians. And if we think about particularly, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I don't think this is exactly what Jesus meant. But you know, if you think about music, particularly if you think about certain types of popular, what we call popular music, um, we might talk about music that has soul, right? It has feeling, it has, it grips you, right? Well, we're to do all things. We're to love the Lord with all our soul. So when we make music as Christians, it should grip people. It should be soulful music. It shouldn't be non-emotive and uninteresting and unengaging. It should really grip the listener because we should be doing it with all of our heart, with all of our strength, all of our soul for the glory of God. The fourth principle, uh, I would turn back to the book of Exodus again. Uh, Here, God again has given them instructions on all these different things that they are to make and and create and sow and, and all of these things that they are to build and to do. And we think about art and we think, well, is it, is it beautiful? The, the painting or the drawing or the song that we're listening to, is it beautiful? Well, listen to what God says about beauty in Exodus chapter 28, verse 2. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. So he's given instructions to Moses. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's the priest. He's going to make holy garments for him, priestly garments He says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. The garments that were made for the priests were to, to set them apart for glory, to set them apart. Hey, 
those are the priestly garments. Those are, that's what they wear when they meet with God. But it was also for beauty. They were supposed to be good to look at. We were, they were supposed to look at the priestly garments and go, those are nice looking robes. That's, that's good quality workmanship. That's nice design. They're going to meet with God and they're wearing what we would call their Sunday best. Right? There's a reason we talk about that. We meet with God, we wear our Sunday best. It's for beauty. It's for glory and for beauty. And, and so we think about this. You may have heard the phrase before that all truth is God's truth. Well, we might uh, mirror that and say all beauty is God's beauty. He created the world with all sorts of beauty in it. And so as an artist engages in art and creates things of beauty, they're mirroring God's creation. And so all beauty is God's beauty and reflects his glory. And so art should be a reflection of the beauty and the glory of God. As we imitate his creative acts, uh, the art that we create should reflect certain aspects of our creator that are beautiful. Right? It should be pleasing to the eyes. Uh, it should bring delight uh, to others who see it. But also it should be Think about God's creation and the beauty of it. It's orderly. It's designed down to the intricate details, right? We talk about the intelligent design and God's creation. You look at it under a microscope or through a telescope, and we can see how orderly his creation is. It's not chaotic. It's not random. It's not un. un there's not, it's not a lack of intellect, right? It's not unintelligible. It's, we can look at it and see the beauty in it because it is intelligible, because it was designed and it's not random. And so our creative endeavors should be the same uh, and they should pursue beauty because all beauty is God's beauty. Fifth, uh, and this is where we begin to really differ from our non-Christian neighbors as we create art, is that the Christian artist, this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, the Christian artist should seek to avoid sin as he creates art. We should seek to avoid sin. So as we think about that, God is a God of truth, right? And he has created us uh, to be uh, of the truth as he is of the truth. And so uh, we should create things that are true. Right? I mean, here's the command, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. We're, we're to pursue truth because God is truth. So what does that mean in the arts? Because we go, well, wait a minute. Fiction is by definition not true. So does that mean we shouldn't engage in fiction? Well, not at all because Jesus created fiction. When he told parables, he was creating fictional stories. They were not true events that had actually happened. So it doesn't, fiction isn't necessarily a lie. If as long as it's honest about the fact that it's fiction, Fiction can actually convey truth because the bigger idea is what idea, what value is being expressed in the art? Is it a true idea? Is it true value? Is it a true identity? What, what meaning is being expressed in the art? So I'm going to give you uh, a couple of examples, a positive one and a negative one. The positive one, Lord of the Rings. Right? Here we have a work of fiction created by J.R.R. Tolkien but it's a truthful work of fiction, right? It portrays the struggle between good and evil. It portrays the depravity of man. Uh, it, it shows the value of what we might think of as normal 
non-heroic figures, right? The hobbits. They're not grand warriors. They're not wizards, special powers. They're just kind of gardeners and farmers, normal people. But what they do has great value and, and impacts others around them to a great degree. Their lives matter. Uh, the work shows us the beauty of goodness and the ugliness of sin. It shows us the fleeting nature of this world that is passing away, right? I mean, there's a note of sadness even in the victory at the end of the work because the world is passing away. Those are all true things that this work of fiction is uh, conveying and expressing to us. How about a negative example of that? Well, I would look at a lot of uh, modern TV and movies that are filled with an agenda of the LGBTQ movement. Now, Lauren and I were just recently trying to find a new TV show that we could watch, and we found a police drama that we were enjoying, and then halfway through the first season, they began introducing LGBTQ characters. Well, this is not a truth. This is a value. This is a morality, an idea, an identity even, that is being expressed in a work of art, and it's not a true one. This is a false identity, right? The LGBTQ identity flies in the face of God's truth and his created reality. So this is a, a falsehood that is being conveyed in a work of art. Christians should have no part in such a thing. What about uh, the sin of murder? If we think about art, how would a Christian avoid the sin of murder uh, in art? Well, you know, Christ explains to us that the sin of murder is about more than simply murder. It's about hate. So you can think about works of art that are filled with hate and with anger and expressions of, of, of that. Christians shouldn't take part in those. Or adultery, the sin of adultery. Should a Christian take part in art that expresses uh, and glorifies the sin of adultery or incites lust in those who view it? Well, absolutely not. A Christian should have no part in creating those sorts of works of art. What about theft, about stealing, right? You shall not steal. That's one of the commandments. Well, how do we avoid that in the creation of art? Well, first of all, you know, one of the big issues in the creation of art, when I was in college, I was getting my degree in, biz, in uh, music business, which is a creative art. I had to take a copyright law class. There are copyrights in artwork. If an artist steals another artist's work and passes it off as his own, that's breaking the commandment, right? So there's a way to, to do work uh, honestly rather than stealing someone else's work. Now, here's one that's a little more controversial. Well, I'm gonna, I'll come back to that in a minute. What about the Sabbath? How, how do we honor the Sabbath as we're creating art? Well, one thing I would say is if we're going to lump sports into the art category as performance art, how difficult is it for anyone who is involved in sports, from childhood up to professional sports, to keep the Sabbath, to actually gather with the saints to worship on Sunday when so many of their games are scheduled on Sunday? becomes very difficult for a Christian to be fully engaged in the performance art of sports and actually honoring the Sabbath by gathering for worship with God's people. Here's the more controversial one. What about the second commandment? What about the second commandment? The second commandment, which reads in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now, 
clearly this is not a command not for them to make an image of a pomegranate because God later instructs them to make such images to decorate the temple. What he's specifically speaking about here is not making an image of God. Verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, obviously, we would look at, for instance, the Catholic Church with all of its icons to Christ, Mary, the saints that they look at, they parade them around, they pray to them. When we lived in Boston, we saw the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church partner together to uh, do what they call the Stations of the Cross. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. And they actually went out in the neighborhood with icons of saints and images of Christ on poles and marched through the neighborhood and stopped on the street corners and said prayers to the images that they were carrying around with them. I mean, that's gross idolatry. Christians are not to be engaged in that sort of thing. But if the second commandment here forbids us from making images of God, and this is a debatable issue. Some Christians don't think that it forbids all images of God, only those that we would use to worship. I would land on the the side that says it forbids us from making images of God altogether. Uh, As we create images of God, should they be truthful images of God? Can we depict God, who is a spirit, in an image? Can we make a truthful image of Christ, even, God who came in the flesh? We have no idea what he looked like. There's no scriptural record in the New Testament that gives us a description of his facial features. We cannot make an artist rendering of Christ that is accurate because the scripture doesn't give us one. So any image we make of him is inherently untruthful because it is not accurately portraying even his humanity let alone the union of his humanity and his divinity in one person. That cannot be portrayed in a piece of art. So here's a couple of quotes I want to share with you in this regard. Here's one from Joel Beakey and his Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 1, page 609, for those of you who want to look it up. He says, God is not made of physical stuff that men can shape to their own purposes. Therefore, we should abandon idolatry. The making of a visible image of a divine being or the use of such images in our worship, which the second commandment forbids. Here's Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says, Every statue man erects or every image he paints to represent God simply displeases God as something dishonorable to his majesty. Calvin goes on at length about the majesty and the glory of God and how we cannot depict it. Even if we try and make an image of Christ, he is now resurrected and glorified in heaven, and we can't depict that in an image. Here is from John Murray, a Scottish theologian who was one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary back in the early 1900s. He said this, pictures of Christ are in principle a violation of the second commandment. A picture of Christ, if it serves any useful purpose, must evoke some thought or feeling respecting him. And in view of what he is, this thought or feeling will be worshipful. So, first of all, it can't be a truthful, accurate depiction of Christ. And if it is any image of Christ and of any value to us, it should cause us to think on him. When we think on Christ, that incites worship in our soul. So depicting images of God is not something a Christian should be involved in. 
And I would say that applies to the screen as well as to the painted or the drawn image. And so for that reason, uh, among others, I would not encourage anyone to watch, say, the TV show The Chosen. Uh, it's inaccurate biblically, and it is depicting Christ in the image of a man, uh, an actor who's not even a believer. He's a Roman Catholic. Uh, so I would discourage you from watching such a thing. And I know there is disagreement on this issue, but I would be remiss if I did not uh, warn you against something I saw to be sin. And I've heard arguments that, well, again, image of Christ, but I'm not bowing down to it. I'm not worshiping it. Well, as Andrew Murray said, if it's an image of Christ, it should be moving you to worship. If it's not, it's in vain. And if it is, then it's false worship. Uh, and secondly, we come to church every Sunday morning. Are any of us bowing down on Sunday morning? Worship is about more than simply bowing down to an image. So just because you didn't bow down in front of it doesn't mean you're not worshiping it. Uh, so you know, it's one of, this is one of those situations where sometimes I feel like people are trying to get as close to the line as they can without crossing it. Why would we do that? Let's stay away from the line. Uh, but the whole point here is that Christians should avoid sin as we create art. Uh, we should not knowingly engage in sinning or inciting others to sin. The sixth principle uh, I would find in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And here he tells us, In verses 13 through 16, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Christians who engage in the arts should be doing so with an eye toward being a light in the darkness of this world. There's a lot of artwork created, whether it's visual, whether it's music, whatever, that is simply dark. Christians are to be a light in the darkness of this world. But that doesn't mean we can't be truthful as well. Think about the Psalms. As you read the Psalms, how, how much do we hear anguish in David's soul in some of those psalms, fear even, you know, human failings and their, their feelings being expressed. And yet, the psalms always point us towards the hope that we have because of God's mercy and his goodness to us. So David is able to honestly express human feelings, honestly express sin even, but to do so in such a way that brings glory to God and hope to the reader. So as Christians engage in the arts, uh, we should do so with an eye towards um, being a light in this world. Uh, if you want further discussion of that, I would recommend that you get a copy of Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live? He has a chapter in there dealing with art and music and literature that is excellent uh, on this subject. So let's turn our attention briefly in the last few minutes to uh, the sciences uh, because there's, it's very much the same as we think about how do we engage in the sciences. Uh, modern science, we must remember, is largely founded by Christians, 
by believers. Right? As we think about Galileo, Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, these are Christian men who were pursuing scientific endeavors to learn about God's universe and to organize that knowledge. Galileo, in fact, once said that when we properly interpret the world of God, it will not be in conflict with the word of God. That's a great motto for any scientist to adopt. If we properly interpret the world that God has made, it will not be in conflict with the word that God has given. So uh, as we engage in the sciences, one of the things Christians need to look out for is what I would call scientism. Uh, we put an ism at the end of it here. Uh, it basically elevates the, the scientific endeavor to an ideology that says that uh, the only thing that exists is material or natural existence, that there is no supernatural, and therefore man's reason is supreme as we seek to reason and understand the material existence that we live. The problems with that are is that you cannot scientifically prove that science is the only way to know truth. There's no way to scientifically prove that by experiment and observation because you, you simply can't disprove special revelation. It can't be done. Not only that, but this idea that there is no non-material existence uh, is predicated uh, on their reliance on their non-material realm of conscience and reason to understand the material existence. So they're self-contradictory uh, in what they're claiming. And, and then thirdly, moral knowledge cannot be scientifically proven. And moral knowledge is necessary for human society. And all humans have it, right? Well, we understand that murder is wrong, uh, that stealing is wrong. These things are baked into us because God created us in a certain way. We all have those. But scientifically, how do you prove that stealing is wrong as a science? Well, you can't prove these sorts of moral things that we know, and yet they're necessary for human society to function. So as we think about the sciences, we would apply the same six principles that we did to the arts. We should approach them, the, the sciences with humility. Uh, if we are engaging in scientific endeavor, we should do so in the pursuit of excellence, seeking to please God and glorify him. We should come into it with the idea that all truth is God's truth. And so whatever we are discovering, we are discovering something that God has created. We should avoid sin in the pursuit of science. What does this look like briefly? Uh, well, you know, again, the sin of lying, right? taking someone else's research and claiming it as your own. Or how about this, twisting and, and purposefully uh, misinterpreting statistics and data in order to get the result that you want. I don't know if you've ever read any of the stuff like from Answers in Genesis about carbon dating. And as the scientists carbon dated certain things and didn't get the results they expected, they just continued running test after test after test until they got one that gave them the results they wanted and then they threw the rest of the results out. Well, they're not being honest. They're lying about their process. Stealing, again, uh, we talked about research. There are patents, just like copyright law. Um, how about murder? I think this is a big one. As we engage in the sciences, right? Uh, research and development based on 
the spoils, so to speak, of the sin of murder. Think about the Nazi scientists during World War II who tortured and killed numerous people in their pursuit of scientific knowledge. Or think about much research and development that has been done on various medications and consumer projects on the basis of fetal stem cells from aborted babies. A baby who was murdered and now the spoils of that murder are used in the pursuit of scientific knowledge. Christians should have no part in that. Christians should go into the pursuit of scientific knowledge with an understanding of the image of God in man and the dignity of human life, and so should avoid uh, such pitfalls. So let's close with a brief discussion on uh, what I mentioned earlier about being consumers of art and science. If we, We've talked about participating in the art and science, but how do we consume art and science? Well, first of all, we should seek to glorify God rather than man. So as we consume art, right, we, we should be praising God for the gifts that he gave to the artist, but not simply glorifying the artist as such. We should appreciate beauty as a gift from God, right, and not a gift from this particular artist. We, again, should avoid sin as we consume art, right, sins of lust and hatred and covetousness and, and, and that sort of thing. We must guard our hearts against uh, the, the ideologies, the messages that are being expressed in art. Art has a tendency to move us. I don't know if you've ever been moved by a song or a piece of artwork. It moves us. So we should be aware that it's moving us and seek to consume art that moves us toward God rather than away from him, which means that we need to practice discernment as we consume uh, the arts. And so I want to read to you a passage from Philippians that I think is a great passage in this regard. Paul tells the, the Christians in Philippi in chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brother, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So Christians should meditate on those things that are true, as we discussed, that are noble, that are just, pure, lovely, of good repute, that are virtuous and praiseworthy. Now, art should move us to praise God and to give thanks to him. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't consume art created by non-Christians because they can, at times, reflect God's glory in his creation and move us uh, to praise God. And they can inform us sometimes of truth. Uh, and so uh, we don't have time to look at these passages, but you can write them down if you like. Acts 17, 28, Paul is in Athens. He is preaching there to the Athenians, and he quotes uh, from a Sicilian poet in verse 28, Acts 17, 28, named Aratus. He quotes a line from one of his poems. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, he quotes uh, a Cretan poet and philosopher by the name of Epimenides. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, he quotes a line from a play written by a Greek poet in the 3rd century B.C. by the name of Meander. Uh, and so Paul obviously was familiar with non-Christian art, poets and philosophers, and he was able to quote those things uh, in his sermons and in his letters to the churches. Uh, so he was able to take truth that he found. All truth is God's truth. So if he found truth or beauty somewhere in a creation of a non-Christian, he was able to take that and use it for good. Uh, and then lastly, I would say as we consume science, uh, much the same thing. 
glorify God and not man's reason, be thankful for science, for modern medicine, uh, avoid participating in sin. Um, if we know that certain products were made using fetal stem cells, avoid those products. Uh, practice discernment uh, as we engage in the sciences. Are what they are teaching us in the sciences, is it true? Is it noble? Is it just? Is it pure? Meditate on these things. Uh, we should uphold the dignity of life and uphold the glory of God as the creator in, in all that we do in consuming the sciences. So those are the six principles. Humility, pursuit of excellence, praise and glorify God. All truth is God's, all beauty is God's. Avoid sin and seek to be a light in the darkness of the cultures of this world. Let's close in a word of prayer.